Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sociology. I'm Patrick Sheehan, one of your hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Daniel Green, an assistant professor at the University of Maryland's College of Information Studies, about his new book, Fresh Off the Presses at MIT, called The Promise of Access, Technology, Inequality, and the Political Economy of Hope. I'll give you the short back of the book blurb before we get started, um, and a few of my own comments. Why do we keep trying to solve poverty with technology? What makes us feel that we need to learn to code or else? In The Promise of Access, Daniel Green argues that the problem of poverty became a problem of technology in order to manage the contradictions of a changing economy. Green shows how the digital divide emerges as a policy problem and why simple technological solutions to complex social issues continue to appeal to politicians and professionals who should and often do know better. And I'll just add, after reading the book myself, the book, it brilliantly traces how a certain idea about inequality what Green calls the access doctrine, first emerged in this sort of political economy of the 1990s. And he he pulls apart the logic of the idea, but then grounds it by showing how it seeps into our shared institutions through really, really detailed ethnographic reports of a startup company, a public library, and a charter school in DC in the post-recession years. So it's a wonderful sociological study of how a discourse comes into action and how it actually shapes the social world. With that introduction, Daniel Green, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the kind words, Patrick. Really happy to be here. Let's start with the kind of core idea that animates the book, what you call the access doctrine. Could you tell us what is this, what is the story that it tells about economic inequality? Sure. So I I think, um, you know, we're all pretty used to, it's almost become a joke now, the advice that, well, you're out of a job, you're looking for a better job, you need to figure out how you're going to make money in an economy that seems stuck in a rut. What do you do? Well, you should learn to code, obviously. Um, and that advice has taken a couple of different forms over the last 30 or 40 years. But that kind of idea that access to technology and the skills to use it will power economic mobility has been quite strong since the early 1990s. Um, So that's the access doctrine. It it tells us that the problem of poverty can be solved through the provision of new technologies and new technical skills. Uh, It gives people who are left out of the information economy the chance to catch up and compete. And they win gains not only for themselves and their own chances in the labor market, uh, but for their community around them. So this is very much connected um, to discourses of the skills gap um, and the ideas that whole cities, regions, or communities are left behind because people don't have the right technology or the right skills. And one of the things I love the most about the book is that you place, you really trace this idea's roots in a particular historical moment, political economy of the 1990s and sort of the governing philosophy of Atari Democrats, uh, like Bill Clinton's administration. Um, and this is a moment where, in which the kind of New Deal Fordist model of employment is really has really fallen apart by this point. The job market is changing a lot. The relationship between the state and workers is being remade. 
all this is happening right around the emergence of the much hyped internet coming into sort of public world. So why did this story, why did the access doctrine fit so well in this time? Why was it such an appealing explanation uh, and prescription for that moment? Um, at least why, why was it so easily sold politically? Yeah, that's, that's a really important question. And it is um, very important for me for this whole project to make sure that we take apart what are seemingly uh, universal common sense ideas and show that they come from really particular places with, with particular interests. Um, so there was a general economic crisis uh, that manifested in a bunch of different formations in the 1970s um, through things ranging from leaving the gold standard to the oil shock um, to stagflation, uh, deindustrialization, a general crisis of profits in the global capitalist economy. And it took uh, you know, a decade or two for capitalism to figure out how to reconfigure itself and, and resolve that crisis. In the global north, that meant a lot of deindustrialization, whether through automation or outsourcing. A lot of industrial jobs were lost. Many were replaced with service jobs, which uh, paid a lower wage, were less unionized more temporary. Uh, employers across the country, really on the advance, supported by the Reagan government and later administrations um, to really fight against uh, workplace rights in the welfare state more generally. There is a kind of an overarching sense that large swaths of the country are being left behind. And that uh, there is increasing inequality and in a really like polarized economy. At the same moment, we also see the, the massification of the carceral state responding to the uh, both the uprisings of the 1960s and 70s, as well as the, you know, the fact that there are, you know, simply not enough jobs being created to go around for folks. So a massive expansion in prisons and policing at the local, state, and federal level also follows this economic shift. In moments like these of like great economic and political transition, uh, you know, I draw on Gramsci a lot in the book. At, at moments of transition like these, um, capitalist blocks need a good story to tie everything together, to tell people what the new rules of the game are and how the economy is going to work moving forward. So the access doctrine is that story. And it tells us that you may feel you're being left behind, but if you log on and train up, everything's going to be okay. The internet, because it could potentially connect everyone, you know, remember there are commercials at this moment from places like MCI that are really talking about like the end of distance, the end even of like labor market barriers related to race or gender. Because that opportunity to compete is available everywhere, no one will be left behind. Now, that has the um, benefit of putting the uh, burden of economic transition on individual workers and the unemployed. They are in charge of getting back into the game. But nonetheless, it is a very hopeful story. You know, the, the factories may have gone, wages may be flat, but there is opportunity everywhere. You simply need to log on and train up. 
Now, um, I do want to get into sort of the, the hope part of it, because it's right in the subtitle of your book. And there is something to how kind of ambitious this story is and the, the boosterism around it and the kind of, yes, we can in a weird, like individualized way. Yes, we can. Um, that's hard to resist. And it gives, it gives the story. It, it makes the story hard to doubt. You know, you look like kind of a hater if you say that this isn't, you know, our path forward. Um, but actually before I get into that, sorry. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the theory of the access doctrine, what it exactly it's saying, right? It's, essentially saying that our problem in the economy is a deficit of human capital and that if people can learn the proper skills that align with these new technologies, they'll be able to see the social mobility, you know, all, all ships will rise, you know, both individuals will move up and the economy itself will boom. Um, and you don't, you don't exactly, you know, set out to show that this is the wrong diagnosis of the problem at the time, but you do write a bit about some of the more dubious elements in this sort of economic theory. One is that, and these are things I found very interesting, that the very idea of skills around which the whole thing centers, that, you know, the doctrine centers as the explanation for inequality is skills and skills gaps. This concept is extremely slippery. Skills are very hard to measure. They might just be a proxy for other things in the labor market. So that's one kind of vague thing in the story. And another is that you mentioned is that the record that the U.S. has in trying to resolve skills gaps through training programs is really bad. They never seem to work. Um, so I guess my question there is, um, can you tell us, maybe just tell us a little bit about those empirical shortcomings of the, the theory? While noting that your point is not to disprove it, um, what do those kind of weird, vague pieces of it do for the story? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that there is something to the, the vagueness and the hopefulness of this idea that it gives it a tremendous amount of political utility. Um, no one wants to sound like a hater. And um, it's ultimately unfalsifiable, right? Because there's always going to be another new technology, always going to be another coding language, um, always going to be another new line of industry that demands new skills. And if the industry itself is not committed to training people, well, then that burden then falls on workers. Um, and, I, and I do think there's a lot of, of brilliant researchers out there. You know, I'm hardly the first to say that, you know, there's something that's wrong with uh, our stories about the skills gap of the digital divide. Um, Peter, like uh, People like uh, Virginia Eubanks or, or Peter Capelli or Neil Selwyn. Um, and and the book as a whole is, is really meant to say not so much uh this is wrong you all of you dummies have been tricked but why do we keep sticking with this even when most of us realize that the story is more complicated you know with that said it, it you know it is important to note that like as you say um skill is enormously difficult to operationalize uh and the kind of as is technology and when we talk about um stories about like skill bias, technological change, the, um, an idea usually found in economics that um, technological change prompts demand for heavier skills in the labor market. Skill, you know, labor sociologists um, and labor historians have said for decades um, is often, you know, another name for race or gender, skilled versus unskilled work. Um, it is often uh, a defensive maneuver when labor is in power, you know, if you control some aspect of the means of production, you are in control of some aspect of your working conditions, 
then you can control uh, the supply of your labor um, and the, the price you set on it. And you can call yourself skilled. Uh, if you have a weaker position in the labor market, then you're not as able to define yourself in those terms and you have to take what's on offer. Um, and that's even before you get into the specifics of measuring, you know, what does it mean to be a, you know, a skilled programmer when something like software development can be found in millions of different contexts? You know, there it's not just Facebook or Apple, but any large organization that you can think of is usually um, employing some person with a computer science degree in some capacity. And then historically, we've also seen, like you said, these attempts by the U.S. to uh, train up people in the wake of deindustrialization have largely failed. The biggest experiment here was uh, Ronald Reagan's um, JTPA, uh, a program meant to train up um, workers who lost jobs in heavy industry um, and replaced a program uh, that had been around since the Johnson administration that was um, more of direct job provision. So we, um, and this is a, a trend throughout the second half of the 20th century is we're largely replacing uh, direct job provision and direct cash benefits with skills training and workfare. But yes, this massive effort um, to train up thousands of workers who had lost their jobs due to deindustrialization ended up costing more uh, than it brought in. It ended up seeing uh, negative labor markets returns for some folks, um, for the uh, Women in the sample, there uh, was far greater of an influence um, on sexism than there was in terms of the uh, skill returns that they had. It was very obvious that, um, you know, there are other things besides how good you are at whatever your job is that matter in your uh, in your hiring. And the program as a whole just did not leave uh much of a legacy after I think about 1984 it closed down. So we just haven't had a great record at this. It's a really hard problem to solve. And then uh, as these skill gaps keep getting mentioned in the media, always by hirers, always by politicians, irregardless of what the labor market itself looks like, it's hard to find evidence that that is really out there. Um, So there's a, a great study from labor sociologist Lou and Grusky in I think 2013 Um, that attached uh, occupational returns um, or wage returns to um, occupational measures from the community survey, ACS, over the last 40 years or so. And they found that it was, you know, critical thinking skills that were most in demand by employers and not necessarily the technical skills that, you know, we would believe if we really thought there was something like a STEM gap. At the same time, not coincidentally, job uh, satisfaction plummeted. Mm -hmm. As best we can tell, we've also spent much less time training people on the job compared to 40 or 50 years ago. It's a difficult thing to measure, but I think that is probably the most telling part of this story. Because when employers say that there is a skills gap, what they're saying is we are not going to train you. It's on you and whatever labor market institutions you find yourself in, school, library, whatever, to provide us with what we need. Because there's not that uh, kind of vertical climb through the organization through a series of promotions that we associate with the Fordist economy. These days, our employers expect us to show up ready to work 
not in need of any training, and any promotion that we get to a higher position is much more likely these days to come from a lateral move going to another organization. So the evidence for any kind of um, idea that technology and the skills to use it or what are holding back the labor market is, you know, at best, it's a more complicated story than it looks like on the, on the surface. Um, but at, at worst, you know, it, it really does sound like employers are asking us to do their job for them, to do all the training that used to happen inside the organization. And amazingly, I mean, despite the obvious complications of it, the idea has this like political gravity is what you call it. And I actually just want to read a couple sentences you wrote that I think sum it up really well. Um, You say, quote, the framework of the human capital crisis exerted an inescapable political gravity, recruiting researchers to repeatedly refute, complicate or nuance it, but never vanquish it. Even if it was poorly framed, the problem was too urgent to dismiss. The access doctrine compels scholars to respond. Its gravity draws us in, uh, end quote. I just find so fascinating that how it can, how an idea like this can have a life of its own, sort of. And in much of the rest of the book, you sort of show what that life looks like through organizations and people. Um, but how, you know, all, all these empirics seem to do no harm to it. Um, yeah, I really, I, I appreciate you bringing that up, Patrick. Like I, um, the access doctrine is a kind of a wide umbrella that includes like child concepts, um, like the skills gap. And the, and the one that brought me into this discussion was of the digital divide, um, which as a phrase has kind of lost a little currency in the last couple years as something like digital inclusion has become more popular. Um, but the early parts of the book in particular about the 1990s revolve around this idea of the digital divide. And, you know, frankly, I'm part of the problem here. You're part of the problem for talking to me about it. Our like scholarly organizations are part of the problem here because we keep returning to these, what seem like very uh, basic um, binaries produced by government and industry about, you know, a a gap between those who do have access and those who don't. And and we keep returning to that problem to say it's more complicated than that. It's, it's actually a spectrum or it's actually a range of issues across the life course, um, or it's actually about uh, the returns and the skills to use something rather than just getting the device. And we keep complicating the story and we keep complicating it. But that basic idea of people being left out still remains. We just want to nuance it a little bit more. It's really hard to get around that. And we all find ourselves getting pulled into it. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it reminds me which of, of something that I think you cite in the book at some point, this book by James Ferguson about development sort of discourse has a totally parallel thing of he's critiquing the development story of, of uh, rich countries developing poor countries and similarly shows it just you just can't get away from it. It just yeah, even the critics are kind of pulled into its its pull into its energy. Um, I think it's got a lot of parallels to this. But um, we've been talking mostly at the level of ideas so far, and that's some of the brilliant stuff in the book. But I want to take us to the meat of the sort of ethnographic project. So the empirical chapters of the book show how this idea animates institutional change across a bunch of different organizations that are important to public life. So you've got a chapter on a startup firm um, as sort of the ideal organization in this world, a public library and a high school, charter high school. Um, and the access doctrine sort of forces change in them in interesting ways. 
um, both, you know, from top down, like funders pushing the story, but also fascinatingly through sort of more bottom up ways through the professionals that staff them. Um, but I want to start, let's take, maybe take them in turn, or at least start with the startup. This is, like I said, it's the ideal organization in this world imagined by the access doctrine. Um, and you spend some time in one in the DC area where all the book is set. And you find that one of the key concepts for sort of understanding its success and legitimacy in this constantly changing world of new technology uh, is the idea of the pivot. Um, and people who you know are around the tech industry will have heard this term a ton. But can you tell us what what pivot means in this world? Um, and if this makes sense, what are the sort of different levels of pivots you saw that going on in this uh, in the startup you studied? Yeah, it was really important for me to focus this story on the kind of organizational layer of social life. And I, I do think that's something that distinguishes this project from earlier work in digital divide literature, um, because that was where I found the answer to that, that question that I posed earlier. It was like, you know, we all keep trying to disprove this idea that seems, you know, very basic and then without a lot of nuance and doesn't connect to everyday life, but we can't get rid of it. And I, I really found that the, where the action was, was not in the motivations and decisions of individual people, although obviously that matters, nor in the big structural changes um, that you know force us into a new economy, although obviously that matters. Rather, the answer was in uh, organizations that address the problem of poverty themselves. And it are these folks um, engaged in the process of, of what uh, Marxist feminists call social reproduction, the, the process of making new people for a particular economy. It is those folks that uh, teach us how we need to survive in the new economy and teach us what skills we need and how to get there. They teach us the rules of the game. And the Access Doctrine forces on them this really urgent task. They need to save the people who are left out in order to do that these organizations like schools and libraries need to change themselves so that they have the right tools for the job, the right people for the job, the right resources, the right space that they can give uh, to folks who are being left out. They themselves are under threat. And that is why they ultimately end up embracing these ideas because they say, uh, you know, who needs a library when we have the internet? Who needs public schools if we can, uh, you know, fund a bunch of different charter experiments. Uh, who needs uh, tax funding if we can rely on philanthropic donations? So these places that are um, prepare people to enter the labor market are un themselves under enormous amounts of pressure. Um, straight up fiscal crises, uh, legitimacy crises, and just crises of daily operations. <laughs> Um, because as you know, other parts of the welfare state shrink or are, are replaced with policing and prisons, we are then presented with uh, schools and libraries that have, frankly, too much to do. You know, teachers are also nurses and social workers and translators and, and counselors and pastors, and they, they just have a ton to do and not all of it that they're trained for. And it's because of that overwhelming burden placed on these places that they turn to the access doctrine, which simplifies the enormous tasks placed before them and garners resources and legitimacy from politicians, potential donors, and other stakeholders. It's how they survive, even if they don't necessarily believe in the story. 
And the model for survival, you know, the, the one organization in our contemporary economy that looks like uh, it's doing well, doing great and expanding the uh, place where we see what um, not just survival, but what really thriving in the information economy looks like is the startup. And the startup is an ideal type for all sorts of different organizations these days. You know, everyone wants to call themselves a startup. Everyone wants to call themselves an, um, an entrepreneur because these places don't just kind of ride out the overwhelming economic uncertainty that seems to dominate our contemporary era. They really seem to master it and take advantage of it. Like they thrive in these conditions where older organizations or welfare state institutions seem to struggle. You know, we know, of course, that they are made to struggle. They are under assault. Um, but from, you know, the perspective of like an underfunded library, when you see some, you know, tech CEO giving the keynote at your educators conference, you know, his position looks pretty good. Like that's that seems like a good script to follow. So, yeah, so I start out in startups um, to kind of show what that ideal type looks like and how it starts remaking the rest of the city. And then in subsequent chapters, I can show how other institutions try to become like startups and engage with the city. So I show how you know certain people and ideas and resources move between these different locations from startups to schools to libraries and back again. And like you said, startups themselves, the way they talk about mastering uncertainty is through this idea of the pivot. And there's, you know, this word is in uh, a lot of different places in, um, in kind of like, you know, the business literature and, and startup stuff. But I, I mostly identify it with uh, Eric Rice's uh, The Lean Startup, which came out in 2011 um, and was extraordinarily influential among the tech sector while I was um, doing ethnography and in DC, um, you know, a city that really saw a boom, like like many cities, in its tech scene in the fallout from the Great Recession. Uh, the Lean Startup was inspired by the, as it sounds in the title, the Lean Production Model that Toyota pushed out in the 1970s and its its car factories. And the basic philosophy is that uh, startups should be constantly iterating new prototypes, and you, you get them out the doors as quickly as possible. The, and it's not even that these are tech companies, really. You know, startups are, Rice calls them, I'm looking at my, my notes here, he says, quote, a human institution designed to create a new product or service under conditions of extreme uncertainty. So the important thing to part of that definition isn't the product or the service. It's not a website or an app or whatever. It's the uncertainty. And a pivot is a, uh, a point at which you kind of reach a peak in that uncertainty you need to assess where you're at based on the data uh, at hand and then have a fundamental reconsideration of your business plan and an alteration in it. So you take a new direction based on the data that's coming in. It's a real kind of like gut check moment about who you are and how you do what you do. Um, so the, the startup that I spend the most time with in the book is called InCrowd. It was kind of a catering startup. Um, it's a, a pseudonym. And uh, they early on, you know, just as I arrived on the scene there in uh, 2014, um, pivoted from being a business to consumer company where they were primarily marketing their software 
to, uh, to you know, individual users to being a business-to-business company where they were selling their software to hotels or universities or restaurants. And that is the model of um, the pivot as a kind of a business strategy. But what I found in field work, um, and this is really important for considering this kind of work and these kind of workers as, as an ideal type organization, is that the pivot became something that was integral to every layer of the organization, from the people who founded it, to the kind of everyday workers within it, to its relationship to the rest of the city. So for founders, they really internalize the health of the firm. And there are you know various kind of business reasons for this, most of them related to how venture capitalists um, identify what may be a good bet. You know, when the startup doesn't have much to show for it, you're really betting on that person. So they're not only the kind of CEO in control of the firm, they are also kind of the face of the firm and the uh, person that the investors are depending on. So for the the firm to change, the founder must change in turn. He must uh, sell. It's almost always he has to sell the idea to his investors, to his uh, subordinates, um, to the media. He has to legitimate that. The uh, pivot also uh, came in uh, at the kind of everyday level of work within the firm itself, especially for early stage startups where uh, the firm is, is growing pretty rapidly, but isn't really institutionalized yet. You know, it doesn't have like a human resources department. Everyone is doing everything. You're constantly changing duties, switching all day long. InCrowd grew a lot during my time doing field work there. Um, and so those switches uh, also changed as well. So the, you know, there were different teams who were there um, and will take like the, I don't know, the, the customer service team who, who worked primarily with clients would do a uh, different kind of emotional labor on different parts of the day. And they would have to switch on a dime, you know, one minute, you know, kind of collecting bills, being super angry, another minute being like super cheerful, guiding people through tutorials, um, another minute kind of sternly reprimanding the design team for not delivering a product on time those kinds of things. Uh, This is extraordinarily stressful. There are really long hours with really uncertain work schedules. You know, people are pulling 12, 14, 16 hour days uh, and uncertain prospects. You know, a lot of startups are not making money. So whether you're going to have a job next week, next month, next year um, with this firm is, is really up in the air. And then at the level of the city, you know, these startups, uh, as they start to form a sector and network with each other, begin to offer the city itself a pivot away from its previous economic base to some kind of hopeful future. And this is nice because startups don't require a ton from the city itself besides, uh, you know, new real estate development uh, and new kind of uh, leisure areas, the the kind of um, fixed capital features that we associate with gentrification and the, and the displacement that comes with it, which, you know, most cities are happy to provide. They want to see new housing. 
DC um, in particular was uh, as the um, recession dragged on was, uh, and we entered what was um, called sequestration, these kind of enforced budget cuts in the federal government. Um, DC was trying really hard to grow the side of its economy that was not related to the federal government. Uh, and, and it did, I mean, partly through attrition, um, you know, the growth of the private side of employment in the city um, skyrocketed while the federal government stayed fairly flat starting in about, I think, 2012. Um, and startups offered that kind of future. They, they showed the city that they could have all sorts of mostly white professionals um, come to the city, spend money, uh, and offer a different path for local development than what they had in the future. So this idea of mastering uncertainty unfolds at a, at a bunch of different levels within the startup. You know, the, you pivot within founders, within the firm itself, and across the city. It's, of course, um, something that you still need to buy into. And especially within the firm itself, the work of making people buy into this tremendous amount of uncertainty and feeling like they can master it is mostly done by women. Uh, who often occupy non-technical roles in customer support, human resources, that kind of thing, uh, but take on additional uh, large, you know, largely unpaid or at least not on their job description labor in hosting parties, doing team morale stuff, decorating the office, you know, having like award shows and, and that kind of thing, all the kind of emotional labor that holds the team together. Um, there is a lot of talk about gender gaps in technology and they are very real and they exist, but I, I think that can also stop us from talking about the kind of the actually existing women in tech and their labor conditions. And it was really important for me to emphasize that here because it is, I found again and again, it was those women, um, who were really selling the pivot or being charged with selling the pivot to the rest of the tech sector. Yeah. And that description, I mean, all those levels of pivoting, the metaphorical pivots and whatnot are, are brilliant. But it, that description really shows how particularly placed this firm needs to be to be successful in doing those kinds of things. You know, when the, when the, when InCrowd wants to pivot from uh, customer going to straight to clients to a business to business type of thing, they have access to a bunch of venture capitalists that really believe in those young men, you know, with the MIT degrees um, and just shows like how you're, you know, how difficult it would be to reproduce the success through those pivots in these other kinds of institutions across the city. Um, but as you show, it's this sort of becomes the measuring stick um, with which we look at and evaluate other public institutions like libraries and schools, and they start to have to, in various ways, uh, adapt themselves to it. Um, and I think I think I want to jump right to the portion on the charter school. We're going to leap over the library, the public library section, which is brilliant for right now. But that the charter school profile really jumped out at me. I'm a former Teach for America charter school teacher. Um, and so all this is very familiar to me. But just to give a little introduction to it is um, the charter you study is, uh, you know, part of the charter world, which you'll be able to describe a little better than I but which is most kind of trying to mimic the competitive environment that startups are in. The idea with charters is that we're going to open up a bunch of different kinds with different sorts of educational models. We'll see which ones work, which ones die. You know, some will, will IPO in a sense and, you know, build out a bunch more and some will fail and have a bad exit or whatever. Um, and following my own train of thought here, the charter that you study itself is an interesting mix of, very dedicated to being what 
education reform people often like to call culturally responsive curriculums, you know, centering black and Latino students, explicitly racial justice sort of frameworks in the curriculum. But they also are trying to carry this tech mission. Um, So they're very focused on teaching digital skills. You know, big selling points are that there's a laptop for every kid. They use them all the time. Um, that is a long sort of ramble to, to to get you to start talking about the charter schools. But can you can you tell us a bit about the sort of the, the school that you studied and the technological mission um, that it that it had? Yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, and I really appreciate that introduction. The uh, charter schools, you know, for those who may not be familiar, are um, public private partnerships. Um, so they are publicly funded schools, just like your neighborhood school down the street, um, but privately managed. Um, by some kind of operating organization. And, and some of these operators are enormous. Um, places like KIPP or Rocket Ship um, have many, many schools in many, many cities across the country, even within um, you know, one city. Uh, there'll be uh, multiple uh, examples of a KIPP or a Rocket Ship. And the argument for, um, for charter schools um, and for this like increased uh, privatization of education and, and educational governance is that uh, our model of public education may have worked at some point, but it was for the industrial era. And our schools still look like the learning factories that we built in the 50s. And that just doesn't work these days. We need a different model so that kids stop being left behind. Um, the phrase that comes up again and again is that um, in the education reform movement is that education reform is the civil rights movement of our time. So um, education privatization becomes a, uh, a really important racial justice cause. And, and you're really right to, to point out that the, um, the goal is to help all children, especially um, black and Latino kids in cities. And the method to get there is explicitly through kind of market competition that, you know, the, uh, there's lots of different models that will be chartered by a city or or whatever the school district is. And in theory, the cream will float to the top. The, the best schools judged on test scores. It's all about test scores. Um, will uh, have their model proven and then they'll expand and take up the other schools. There's a million different kinds of charter schools. Uh, the most popular are often these kind of like um, very heavily regimented, no excuses schools that are tight on discipline. Uh, but the, the whole model is based on this kind of uh, market competition. At my school, um, which I called Du Bois, it was... You know, I think one of the better representatives of the movement at, at all my field sites and, and throughout all of the, the people I interviewed for the you know four or five years of research that went into the book, it was really important for me to choose um, the best possible examples of the movement. Um, you know, it's easy to find very shady startups. It's easy to find very shady charter schools. Um, it's easy to find uh, libraries that are being run well. But to really understand how these ideas about the access doctrine force change um, and force us to think about poverty in a different way, I really wanted to find the best leading examples. Um, so Du Bois was a great school. Uh, it, the high school was relatively new. So I was there um, in most heavily for academic year 2014, 2015 with the, the first um, senior class graduating. But D.C. itself, uh, especially since 2007, 2008, 
was really ground zero for the charter movement. Uh, there's a famous Time magazine cover with then Chancellor Michelle Rhee kind of holding a broom, a bit talking about cleaning up education in DC. Uh, she opened a whole bunch of charters, uh, fired a ton of veteran, mostly black teachers, uh, instituted new contracts that were about um, uh, linked teacher pay to student test performance and closed a, a bunch of what she saw as failing public schools. Uh, and the education reform movement really got turbocharged here. People got really invested into it. And the Obama administration very, very much encouraged that. They, they held a screening of the um, pro-charter documentary um, Waiting for Superman at the White House um, during his tenure there. Uh, and Arnie Duncan, his education secretary, was a big, um, big booster. So Du Bois, um, the school that I was at, you know, I, I think it it didn't have many of the um, major kind of like danger signals that a lot of people associate with charter schools. You know, it was not uh, no excuses discipline school. Um, it accepted everyone who got admission through the school lottery. It didn't pick and choose. Um, and it and really did place racial justice at the center of its mission. You know, the everyone in the room, students at every grade, at every um, level could recite the mission of Du Bois, which was to get students into the college of their choice. And they did that through this culturally responsive curriculum, through really intense academic standards, and through technology. And what I saw at Du Bois was this emergent conflict between, on the one hand, the values of the school these kind of you know, racial justice ideals, and the mission on that the school had set for itself, and most importantly, that its stakeholders, the, uh, the people on its board, its donors, the city, had charged it with. And that mission was to upgrade students' human capital, to make sure that they had the skills necessary to enter places like InCrowd and be successful, or at least that's what they told themselves. They didn't want students to be working with their hands, to be working service jobs. They wanted them to go to college, enter the professional workforce. And whenever there was any kind of tension between the school's racial justice values and that human capital mission, you could see it going one way or another. Individual teachers or individual students, even individual administrators might side one way or the other. But the digital infrastructure that made the school such an innovative place for its regulators and, and for its students and teachers, you know, something that they were really proud of, things like the one-to-one -one laptop program, things like the kind of digital infrastructure that monitored everybody's grades and had kind of early warning signals, uh, stuff like that, those things were not in control of individual students or teachers. Those things were in control of the administration and the school's leadership team. And so if it came down to a choice between the school's racial justice values and its human capital mission, the technological infrastructure kind of forced the issue and made it clear that it was test scores that the, were the priority and that you could leave behind the racial justice values if you had to. So over time, just in that academic year, the school moved further and further away from its racial justice values, you know, embracing more discipline, more surveillance, and towards a more strict test score oriented kind of place. 
the, the technology that was meant for social mobility was instead used to protect this mission that appealed to stakeholders because that's what kept the school alive. The school needed to demonstrate progress in order to get its grants, in order to have its charter renewed, in order to maintain its position at the top of the leader table. And I want to get into some of the, you do a really wonderful job of showing the pathways through which these kind of ideas of what the charter school needs to be and often mimicking the startup and, and really addressing the access doctrine, you show how the different pathways through which these ideas enter the school and start to reshape how it sees itself and what its mission is exactly. And uh, I'll name a couple of them and comment on them. You know, one is obviously the funders. These A lot of these charters and this one in particular, always applying for grants from places like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is big on education, the Broad Foundation. Um, and those funders clearly have expectations about technology and sort of the direction of the school. Um, and that's sort of like an obvious sort of top-down inculcation of this doctrine. But it, one I found interesting and very close to heart was you also note that in this school, so many of these teachers, while the school didn't take TFA teachers directly out of college, it took people sort of in that universe, many of many who did TFA earlier and now had a few more years. Um, and you say that these sort of young professionals really carry the water for this idea, even when they start to question a little bit. Um, and I found that just a, a fascinating way to trace the idea into the school. And I know that you, you found a couple places in there where the young TFA teachers, many went to Ivy Leagues and whatnot, um, they're, the, mo they're the, the true believers about this kind of thing. Of course, you also note that they sometimes question it. But when you look at some of the older, more veteran teachers, uh, maybe not young white men teachers, they're a little less um, gung-ho about the idea that we're going to just give them a laptop and it's all going to work out. And it makes me feel like there's something to the idea that requires, it feeds on sort of like young, you know, naivete, like a lack of experience that that kind of builds that energy in these professionals that's going to then suffuse into the organization. Um, could you talk a little bit about that pathway of the ideas and how it sort of gets carried and changes the school? Yeah, you know, part of my kind of intervention into organizational theory here is to think about what are the mechanisms that cause different organizations to, to bootstrap, as I call it, to, to keep reinventing themselves and pursuing new methods, uh, new personnel, new technologies to solve this social mobility problem, to help the people who are left behind to catch up. And one of the pathways for that uh, kind of education and bootstrapping is these bridging organizations, um, places that, that connect different contexts. And they're absolutely present in teacher education. So um, TFA is, is one of the big ones. Brood Institute is another. And they uh, you know, teach their teachers to uh, think of education in these kind of crisis terms. Black and brown children are being left behind. You can save them. And, and to be clear, that, that kind of idea is, has a long history in all sorts of helping professions. You know, the help the helpers help the helped, you know, to look more like the helper. Like that's that's a whole lot of the history of counseling, education, librarianship, going back to the progressive era. 
Um, but TFA in particular is, is really keen on, on placing this in, in crisis terms related to kind of um, technological and economic obsolescence. And they have really found a way to insert themselves into the teacher training pipeline um, that is almost entirely separate from traditional colleges of education because most TFA uh, teachers are not uh, trained educators. You know, they have the, I think I'm thinking of two teachers who are kind of the leads in um, Du Bois in the senior class. One was a, uh, I believe, history and political economy major at Harvard. And the other one was a math major at, I want to say Swarthmore. Um, And both of them wouldn't have taught but for TFA. TFA uh, brings these folks in. It presents them with business language. It presents them with crisis language. It presents them with this idea of like obsolete public schools and the good professionals who need to save them. So I wouldn't entirely put it down onto maybe the naivete of the individual people who were, you know, quite thoughtful. These were good teachers. Like they were, they were good at their jobs. Um, I admired what they did. I learned a lot from them. Um, I would instead put the onus on these kind of bridging organizations that start to take ideas from technology and business and bring them into new contexts like education. And I saw a similar thing in librarianship where, you know, new ways of training libraries um, or librarians um, through iSchools, uh, like the one that I, I work at, um, just present them with examples from the tech sector and from the business sector. So 40 years ago, library schools just trained librarians. Today, most library schools are colleges of information studies or, or schools of information, and they also train, um, you know, database engineers, human computer interaction designers, that kind of thing. So there's not necessarily like a, a nefarious plot here on, on the sides of, of iSchools. It, it's just the simple fact that like if you're training for your librarian degree, you're also going to meet tech sector folks along the way. Like they're going to be in your classes. You're going to see those kind of folks giving lectures at the college. Um, Your professors or your dean or whatever may also come from the tech sector. You just start to be presented with those kinds of ideas and that kind of worldview. Uh, Other bridging and organizations bring more uh, ideas directly from business. The Brood Institute is a really good example there. Um, all three of the top-ranking DC um, education officials and government are Brood Institute graduates. Um, this is kind of a, a large foundation that trains, especially school administrators, and the idea of uh, running a school like a business. And then, of course, all the different funding agencies also exert that that kind of pressure. Um, so there it is really this kind of whole curriculum about saving people who are left behind through ideas of technology and entrepreneurship that has a whole ecosystem of institutions that didn't necessarily exist even 30 years ago. Yeah. And something I would add is I feel like in my own experience as a TFA teacher, you preach this gospel, you know, through the organizations, the longer you spend in a classroom, the harder it is to hold, to hold that dream as you, you know, come across the actual problems your students face. And I feel like there's something to, you know, in the charter world, there's this constant renewal. All right, we're just going to do a new school. Oh, I got a new philosophy, new, 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 You need that constant turnover to keep the dream alive. Because, yeah, you see teachers in those in schools serving those types of communities. They stop. They have a harder time believing it after 15, 20 years. Um, and I would see this with the more veteran teachers I worked with. And 
yeah, there's something to like the renewal and like, well, we could just start over again. That helps that I think helps keep this idea alive in education. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, we need to be clear that like while individual TFA participants, um, you know, present company included, go in with the absolute best intentions to like, you know, really help people and do good. Um, the organization's emphasis on newness is an attack on veteran teachers, um, especially unionized folks, especially um, urban teachers unions where black women are overrepresented compared to the rest of the labor market. Um, that that newness is an assault on on veteran institutions. Uh, but I, I would say that, that, you know, just ethnographically, one way that I noticed that is that it, um, every organization I looked at, even the startup, the um, belief in the access doctrine, the uh, belief in this gospel, I'm, I'm very much inspired by my colleague, Tressie Cottom's um, work on the education gospel in this regard. That belief is thickest um, at the top of the organization. You know, it's, it's especially the CEO or the founder or the superintendent or the principal who talks and walks this stuff because they internalize the organization's fortunes and they need to preach that gospel to internal and external stakeholders. And the closer you are to the ground, to the everyday reality of urban poverty, to the reality of what it's like to, to be a kid who is like, policed every second of their day, who leaves their school job school to go work for six hours, who doesn't have internet at home, who, you know, brings a spare Starbucks cup to Starbucks so they can complete their homework. The more you see those stories and work with those folks, the less you can believe in these kind of simple solutions. And the further up you are in the organization, the further away you are from the ground, the easier it is to believe in these simple solutions. One further question I want to ask, we'll come to the end with a couple more. Um, the book does such a good job of historicizing and denaturalizing this idea. It's not the, this idea being the access doctrine. It's not the only way we can diagnose social problems. It's not the only way we can explain and, and prescribe solutions to, to inequality. Um, but then you spend, we, we spend so much time talking about it that, yeah, it kind of has that gravity. I want to open up a little bit to, like, what are the alternative logics that a public school or a public library could take up today that would offer a different yeah, diagnosis and prescription of what these organizations should be doing in society. I feel that often myself, I tend to look, it's hard not to look backwards to the kind of pre-neoliberal era of these organizations and say, well, it used to be, as the book does well, libraries could be kind of a place to hang out where you don't have to buy something. Um, but are there, maybe I'm getting trapped in the newness thing too, because they yeah. have new ideas, so it's hard to, but um, what do you think about, what are the alternative logics that, that we could push that um, we could infuse organizations with that would give us a different mission there? Yeah, and it's, you know, it's important for me, um, I guess as a Marxist, <laughs> to say that history happens in order. You know, there's, there's no going back and then the world that we have now is the world that we have now because it's built on the world that we came before. And we can't go back to the world that we came before because it's what we have now is built up before. It's accreted. It's it's layered. Right. So, uh, you know, we, we all are, are prone to some kind of Fordist nostalgia, but there was plenty wrong then. So at the, the kind of the climax of the book, I start to draw threads between the different uh, sites of field work and show the different um, 
movement of ideas and people and resources between schools and startups and libraries to show how uh, these uh, organizations reshape themselves and are forced to reshape. And, you know, I see this kind of new institutional culture arising, what, this, what I call like a, a bootstrapping institutional culture that begins to replace public service culture as it existed in the, in the Fordist era. But these are both ideal types, you know, the no school can be a startup. You know, it's just it just can't happen. That's not what a school is for. That's not how its funding works. That's not how its uh, goals happen. It can't pivot to a model of teaching entirely new students in the middle of a school year. It's just schools can't do that. Just the same way. And then the public service culture of the Fordist era that we have in our mind of like an open free space that invites all people is also an ideal type. Many of those places were starkly segregated. Um, and the ideal only existed for a very uh, small number of people. You know, the family wage only existed um, for a, you know a couple or for a couple segments of the labor market. And that's just in the global north. So I, I think that that battle um, between ideals is very real and, and there's never going to be, um, you know, 100% of one uh, existing concretely in reality. I think there are things that we can take from both of them that might be useful. And I, I think there are totally parts of the public service culture that we want to preserve. But the kind of hopeful note um, that I, I try to end the book on is to think of these places really as sites of struggle. You know, that the kind of number one orienting uh, tip that I, I, I took for the, the whole of the book, like um, even during the research phase, is that, you know, people are smart. People aren't stupid. People are not tricked. So these uh, the access doctrine doesn't function as propaganda. It functions as like a, a very real set of incentives and lessons that people get from the institutions in which they find themselves. But they fight within those institutions to create new spaces for themselves. You know, uh, patrons of the library find places to sleep um, or, you know, find resources that they didn't have otherwise. Kids at school stage walkouts um, over uh, learning conditions and over police violence. Like there's, you know, there's plenty of, um, of political will there to make something different. And so I see a lot of hope in uh, the recent wave of teacher strikes in particular. And, you know, I, like I said, I, I focus on these spaces of, of social reproduction, the places that make people for the rest of the economy, but which are themselves usually not profit making places like schools and libraries. And the access doctrine really depends on a hierarchical relationship between the person doing the helping and the person being helped. You know, I, I the white professional, have the tools and ideas that is going to help you, the young Salvadoran woman. Um, to learn how to be in the tech economy. And what we've really seen in the recent wave of teacher strikes, beginning um, with the CTU in Chicago, uh, which was um, reorganized around the Radical Core Caucus beginning in, I believe, 2012. Um, but then this spread all over the country to um, to LA, to West Virginia, to Arizona, um, to Oklahoma, is uh, more of a unity between the helper and the helped and to say that we're all in it together. And strategically, that's incredibly important because the, the access doctrine really does degrade the working conditions of the people doing the helping. 
you know, they are uh, forced to work these long hours and keep reinventing their jobs and their methods to reach these really unattainable goals. Like the idea that you need to save these kids from poverty is an incredibly hard task. Like we know that like we can predict much of academic performance and much of labor market performance, frankly, based on where you grew up. And that's not to say that like geography is destiny, but that there are like immense structural factors um, happening in the labor market related to to racism, related to sexism, um, related to where jobs even are uh, that cannot be conquered with uh, schooling. You know, we ask education to do more than it can do, but all the pressure that we put on it really makes it a very hard job to teach these days. Like it is, it is a hard job. I have nothing but admiration for the teachers that I talk to here, even if some of them, um, you know, engaged in, in some pretty, pretty toxic ideas. And what the teacher strikes show instead is this idea that I can correct and take charge of my working conditions because I know that my working conditions are your learning conditions. So if you support me and I support you in the struggle, then we can win together. Teachers uh, can't strike effectively unless they have the support of the community around them because it'll be used against them. You know, the greedy teachers hurting kids. Students and parents cannot get the school that they want without the support of the people who work in it because they're just not located at a strategic point in the labor process. So what we saw in Chicago was, um, you know, a, a tremendous organizing effort, not just among teachers, but among community members. So it ensures when people go on strike that they have the community behind them. So in 2016, the strike, um, against Rahm Emanuel's administration then resulted not just in more secure pensions for teachers, but diverting some of the real estate development funds of the city into school repairs and into school buildings. In Los Angeles, a teacher strike in, I believe, 2018 was fighting not just for working conditions of for teachers for their salaries and their health plans, but to end the over-policing of black and brown students. You know, we often see that the access doctrine comes with a shadow, which is the carceral state. You know, for those who can't skill up, to who, for those who do not fit into this ideal of labor market success, we have a solution for them. And it's our overpacked prisons and our intensely violent policing. And I think teachers on the ground see that. And they said, like, we're going to fight for you. And we need you to help fight for us. And that unity um, among the whole community, what we often call like social justice unionism, that I think is a path forward. That gets rid of the hierarchy of the access doctrine, that embraces the real world of what schools really mean in their neighborhoods, what libraries really mean in their neighborhoods, and not this, this fantasy that they can instead be startups. And it offers you know, a, a genuine hope of people working together to reclaim the economy and to make a new one, rather than this you know, false hope that if we just log on, train up, we'll all be okay. Let's leave it at that. The book is The Promise of Access, Technology, Inequality, and the Political Economy of Hope, out this year by MIT Press. Uh, Daniel Green, thank you so much for, for talking with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure.